God said. Amen. Amen. Sweet forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And if you don't have your Bible, you can use the blue Bible that's in the chair or pew and turn to page 944. I will begin reading with verse 1. This is one of the, uh, considered by many, one of the great, maybe the greatest chapters, if you can say that, about the Scriptures in all of the Bible. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for... The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh... But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father." The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
Thus the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Lord, apart from your Spirit and your grace, we will understand nothing of this Word. We will not hide it in our hearts or practice it in our lives. And so we come, Lord, asking you, save us. Give us of your Spirit. Make us to walk in your ways according to your promise in the new covenant. We pray this, Lord, for your glory's sake. Amen. I hope that the uh, title is a little bit provocative. Uh, The liberation of planet Earth or heaven is not my home. Is he preaching heresy? Well, I hope that we'll understand a little bit of what I mean. I'm I'm borrowing a title from a book I read recently, uh, one of two that I read to prepare to speak to a family conference on the subject of creation. Now, first of all, I'd like to review some what we've dealt with in Romans 8. I feel like it needs to be very fresh on our hearts, and some of you weren't here last week, so that we can move into uh, the freedom from sin and the freedom in the presence of God to the freedom of a new future. We have the freedom of a new uh, a new freedom from sin, a new freedom before God, and a new uh, future that lies before us because of Him. And this morning, we're going to focus more on the new creation. And in weeks to come, we'll talk about our own personal resurrection and change. So we're going to be looking forward uh, to what our sonship means. If we call Him Father, if this is His name for us, what are all the implications for our lives that we belong to him in this way. Well, in Romans 8, uh, he talks about one force overcoming another force in the passage that we read. We know what that is in regular uh, terms of life when a jet defies the law of gravity with the laws of aerodynamics and the law of engine technology. And so this earthbound body is able to go from Los Angeles to New York in three or four hours because that law has overcome another law. And Paul here says that there is a law or a principle or a force that has overcome another. In verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin leading to death. So the power of the Spirit's life in you has set you free from the power of sin and death that once held you in its grip. And as we saw in this reading, he describes the former life as one of being in the flesh. This means that life was lived by ourselves, in ourselves, for ourselves, apart from God and His grace. This evil, destructive treadmill of self that he calls flesh. And he describes it, doesn't he, in verses 7 and 8, as being hostile to God, that we will not submit to his authority, we cannot submit to it, and we cannot please him. This is that life of sin and death that dominated us, but now the Spirit has set us free from that. 
Notice again in verse 14, now we are being led by the Spirit. It means He is determining your whole life. He's got your whole life. Every part of your life is now being determined by the Spirit because you have been set free from that former life of self. So you are spirit-led, spirit-strengthened, spirit-enriched, and spirit-equipped and nourished. Now, because you walk according to the Spirit, as he says in verse 4, the law is being fulfilled in your life. And that basically means you have a new capacity to walk in love to God And love to people. That's how Jesus summarizes the law. That's how Paul later summarizes the law. It is living out love to God and love to people. So this is being fulfilled in your life. That's why in verse 13, you and I by the spirit are pulling up by the roots all the sinful stuff in our life that opposes that love. He puts it like this. By the Spirit, we are putting to death the deeds of the body, eliminating all that is in our life that opposes love to God and love to people. That's our new freedom. Our new freedom from this self-implosion. Now, we are stretching out and giving ourselves away to God and to others. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. How glorious, how glorious that we can walk in this new freedom by the power of the Spirit. Now that's part one, basically, of our new freedom from sin. But it means a new relationship, specifically a new acceptance with God. And they're not really two different things. They're really part of the same thing as we saw. So... Really what the Spirit has done is summarized beautifully in those couple of words in verse 15. Abba, Father. So far are we from formally being hostile to God, refusing to submit to Him, being unable to submit to Him and please Him, now by the power of God, we actually cry to God from the heart, Daddy. Could there be a more radical change in a human being than hostility and refusal to daddy? With all that that implies, we were before we lived in fear and dread of him. We were suspicious of him. We wouldn't put our lives in his hands. We wouldn't honor and respect his authority. We would not live for his glory instead of our own. No, no. We would not trust his goodness, but that's changed. Not perfectly, by no means will it ever be perfect. But fundamentally, sincerely, now we say, Daddy, with all the affection and honor and awe and delight and glad obedience that is bound up in that word, now by his grace, in some way, we've begun to be tender toward him. We are happy in Him. We want to give Him all that we are and all that we have. We trust Him and we love Him. This is all work of His Spirit. It's a miracle. 
It's a miracle that this hostile human being could be changed to say, Daddy, Daddy. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And you see, that's relational. It's relational. A life of sin and death has a relationship against God. And the law of life in Christ has a relationship with God. Everything is relational in your life. Now, how can this be? How can I, a sinner, stand before this God and feel so accepted by God? How could that be? How could I have resounding in my heart, even though I'm a sinner, the love of God that is undiluted, that is not limited in any way? It's like he loves me as though I'd never done anything wrong. (laughs) And that's the point. Everything is bound up in the fact that I've been joined to Christ Jesus. That's how he begins the chapter. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I was talking with Bill Hoot last night and I said, you know, I think if you summarize Christianity in two words, here are the two words to use, in Christ. That's everything. Justification, forgiveness, having all your sins taken away, His righteousness put to your account, adoption, all the privileges of sonship, growth and sanctification and conformity to Christ, and finally, glorification and receiving everything that Christ will receive, and even bearing His name in suffering. All of that is because we are united to Him, lock, stock, and barrel, and everything we are joined to Christ. So, Through Christ, I receive everything. And we will talk more about that in the weeks to come. So Christ graciously, freely shares the whole of his life, the whole of his salvation, and the whole of his blessings. As it says in Ephesians 1, and notice the phrase, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So you and I always see ourselves bound up with Christ. The acceptance we have with God, brothers and sisters, is Christ's acceptance with God. Nothing less. So you're always asking the question, how accepted is Jesus Christ? How delighted is the Father in Him? Is there any limit? Can there be a shade of even indifference on the Father's part toward His Son? No. So far from there being rejection, there can't even be the hint, the least hint of a slight indifference to his son, but all of his affections go out infinitely toward his son. And brothers and sisters, he doesn't embrace his son now that he doesn't embrace us, for we are his body. We're joined to him. You see, in Christ is everything. That's Christianity. Being joined to Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting in Galatians when it talks about sonship, and now we've talked about the freedom from sin and the freedom of a new acceptance with God. And both of those are bound up because it's because of your acceptance and your the Spirit working in your heart so that you know that you're a child. That's why he says in verse 16, 
The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He doesn't just want you to know a fact about it. He wants you to feel it, to know it, to taste it, to know that love that God has for you and to rest in it. And that's the reason that you want to walk free of sin because you're walking in the love that God has for you. This, the hymn, the, the, the song that was written that ends, nothing compares to the promise I have in you. I just love that last line of that song. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. That's the motive for always leaving sin, is there's a richer treasure to be had in him, even if it comes with the loss of my life. There's a greater treasure to be had in Christ than anything the world can offer. So he sets us free from sin, and he sets us at the same time, and because of this, he sets us in a new relationship with himself. But both places he immediately starts talking about our inheritance. And as several commentators point out, this must be the regular way they thought about their lives. You are children of God, therefore you're heirs, and you have to set your heart and life upon that inheritance. That must be a vital aspect of what you're to think about all the time. You know the cheers where the little cheerleaders say, I say blue, you say white, blue, white. You know, I say go, you say fight, go, fight. We say Abba, he says air. <laughs> we say Abba, he says air. In fact, he doesn't let us say Abba without saying you're an heir. Remember that. Always think. You don't think Abba unless you think I'm a son with all the implications of inheritance. He doesn't allow it. That is that you don't rightly understand your sonship. It must be vital then to your well-being and your happiness and your obedience and strength and your perseverance that you have always before you the rich inheritance that God gives to his people. And then notice, as he says, verse 17, notice how quickly, if children then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the suffering part that he mentions here. Then in verse 18, as he talks about these sufferings not being worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed, what's the first thing he talks about? Creation. It's kind of interesting. In fact, commentators have struggled a little bit of why, why just immediately? Because he says, for the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. How is it connected? The future glory is far beyond the present suffering. And here's a basis for that. The creation itself is awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. So somehow it's connected to this idea of the great glory to come. And let me underscore that by talking about creation itself. You have to bear in mind how tied we are to creation and creation tied to us. And that's some of what we're going to talk about. One reason he probably, probably mentions this is to underscore the certainty of it. In other words, the future glory is so great that the suffering can't be compared to it. For let me tell you, 
All of the creation is bound up in waiting for the revelation of the children of God. This isn't some side issue. It's the future event that will trigger the transformation of the universe. Oh, little old us? That's the feel here. This is majestic, all-encompassing. It bounds all of history in one event. The revelation of you people in that day. The veil taken off and it being revealed actually who you are. The children of God and creation, the universe. The, the word is, and I was thinking about this, the word is uh, you strain your neck. And I, it's kind of funny how we strain our neck when somebody's coming and we go like this. Because it's not like binoculars that you're brought in like 30 feet closer. You know, but, but we do that, you know, we, we just using a little bit to get closer. And that's the, that's the description of creation. It's like just watching, looking on the horizon. When is it happening? All of creation bound up in it. It shows not only the certainty, but the, just the glory and hugeness of it. You know? Yeah, the, the weight of glory makes the present suffering to be negligible because all of creation is bound up in this. And there's also this kind of earthiness, this anti-Greek idea. Uh, the idea that, as people say, the only... And this sounds really holy, and I've said it before years ago myself. Just remember, there's nothing that lasts except the Word of God and the souls of men. You heard that before? Not according to this. According to this, the whole creation is going to be renewed in that day. Our bodies will be renewed in that day. Your body is here to stay forever. Transformed, okay. Glorified, thanks be to God. <laughs> but it's here to stay. That is a Greek anti-biblical statement. I know it means we mean well when we say it, but it's not according to Scripture. Scripture says our bodies and the whole of creation will be transformed. Let me just call to mind a couple of passages from other portions of Scripture. It says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, "...in Him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." And as people point out, this doesn't simply say to reconcile people to himself, but it has the widest range. Everything will be reconciled to Christ Jesus. Paul refers to it in a different way at the first of Ephesians when he says in chapter 1, verse 10, that all things, he will bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Or Acts 3.21 speaks of the restoration of all things. And it's interesting that even in the passage 1 Thessalonians 4, when it says that we will be caught up together to meet Him in the air, and some teaching has it that this is the silent version and everybody else will be left behind. Okay, we understand that. But actually, the word is the, a standard word for people going out to meet a conquering king who's come back from battle. They meet him to usher him into the city. 
That's the picture that as we meet him, then we come to a new heaven and a new earth that is remade for the people of God. And it's interesting in Revelation that it's not so much our going to heaven in the final day, in Revelation 21 and 22, but heaven comes down to earth and is joined with earth. And so it speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. And Orthodox Christianity has always taught this wedding of heaven and earth. Christ comes to us. The Father comes to us. Daddy is home. It's Saturday forever. Okay? That's the picture that Scripture gives us. In a renewed earth, the meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus says. Now, he's taking the uh, phrase from Psalm 37 that in that context says the meek shall inherit the land, speaking of the land of Canaan. But you see, the land of Canaan was a picture of the whole earth. And their inheritance of Canaan is a picture of our final inheritance of creation itself. And of course, not simply the earth, but all of what creation will be in that day. Whatever the universe is, it's our inheritance. Notice what it says in Romans 4.13. As Paul interprets the promise to Abraham, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. We go back and you think, well, wait, wait, I thought it said land or the land of Canaan. And Paul already, you see, is giving it its fullest, richest meaning, the meaning that was embedded even then because the Old Testament is the bud and the New Testament is the opening of the bud. Well, when that bud is fully open, we see the land means the world. Abraham was promised the world. I just love that phrase. Oh, he's going to promise you the world. Yeah, God will promise you the world. And he makes good on his promise. That's why I included, and I think the author included that provocative title, Heaven is Not My Home. In this sense, most of Scripture, as right here, Paul is not talking about our longing to be out of this world in heaven, disembodied. He's talking about when we will be re-embodied, okay? When soul and body will be joined together in the resurrection. And you'll find in Scripture, almost without fail, that's the great hope. It's resurrection, not heaven as such. Although heaven is glorious and it is in the presence of God, and there are a couple of passages that contemplate our going to be with Christ, but over and over, when they talk about the hope, the great hope that we look forward to, that we count on, that we fix our minds on, as Peter says, let your mind be fixed upon this coming of Christ. It is the resurrection that we're fixed upon. It is the new heavens and the new earth, the remaking of all things. And at that time, I think of singing that song, you know, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. And I think at the time of the resurrection, when heaven rejoins uh, earth, I'll be singing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul and my body and the whole creation. And, you know, it's like glory takes over the salvation, the rescue of planet earth, the invasion of planet earth by the glory of God. But what determines that? What is the earth tied to? What, what, what guides that? What, why is the earth looking for us to appear? 
And that's the focus here. It's not even, and this almost seems blasphemous, it's not the earth is looking for God, because you see, the earth's king is man. The earth's vice regent under God is man. And when the, the engine ran off the tracks, it took the whole train with it. That's what Paul is saying in chapter 8 here, verse 20. And most any commentator will say he must be reflecting on Genesis 3, when at the time of the fall, he pronounced a curse on the world. And he says, the creation was subjected to futility. Futility. That's the same word that you'll find translated from Hebrew into Greek in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities. 35, almost 40 times in Ecclesiastes, this word vanity, the emptiness of life. And here is Paul attaching that word to say, the creation is subject to this vanity, this futility. And it awaits the revelation of the glory of the children of God, then it will be set free from its bondage to decay. This world, as glorious as it is, is subjected to this vanity and decay. Now, notice it says, it was subjected in hope. Even in Genesis 3, there's the pronouncement that this man who has plunged you into subjection and under the curse, I am going to write that. And I will raise up a seed and he will bruise the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. There will be one to come to redeem man. And so the appearance of Jesus Christ is the first of the new humanity, the first fruits of the great harvest to come. It's the guarantee of creation's liberty. And so to continue to personify creation, creation must have really stepped it up a bit in its excitement at the resurrection of Christ. Because that was its down payment. That was its guarantee, the first fruits. Oh, the sons of God are around the corner. He, that even this word of being set free is the same word used earlier in chapter 8 of our being set free. See, the same language. Our being set free means eventually creation will be set free. You know that hushed expectancy. Have you ever done that when maybe there's... We kind of did it when uh, Dustin had his going away thing and there were a whole bunch of kids in this room and we all got real quiet because it was a surprise and... Then he opens the door, surprise, you know, that hushed expectancy. And a commentator says, this is basically where creation is. It's just things waiting silently, looking for the appearance of the glory of the sons of God. And isn't it amazing that as wonderful as creation is, that according to Paul, it really has no purpose anymore. Because it was meant to serve and support and be ruled by us for the glory of God. And when that happened and we fell away from that, creation lost its whole purpose. And it's been frustrated. Its whole point of being is frustrated because it was to be under our care of those who glorified God. And you'd think that creation would just glorify God irrespectively of us, but it doesn't. You may have read Frank McCourt's uh, book, Angela's Ashes. 
I read that book and it told about his being raised in Ireland in a poor uh, society at that point uh, among workers. But the real terrible thing was he was raised by an alcoholic father. And there was enough, if he had gone to the factory and brought home his money, all around his, his mother could see families whose husbands were making it and carving out at least a decent life. But for her and her boys, every day he got paid. He went to the pub and drank it all away and came home with almost nothing week after week. And so while they see other people having at least a modicum of things in a decent life, they just got sank further and further into poverty and filth and disease. And in that society, there was nothing she could do but just hang on to this man wherever he took her. That's creation, you see? Married to us. (laughs) Married to us. And so we plunged it into its own form, you might say, of poverty and vanity and meaninglessness. I saw an eagle years ago in a zoo. And as I was standing right before this magnificent creature, suddenly he started flapping his wings, you know. And and I mean, I was standing here just feeling the wind of it. And I was kind of just in awe. And I was pinned to the concrete, you know, thinking, man, if he gets out, I'm dead. You know, just mighty power. And everything that we see in creation, we we feel the wind of it. We feel the power. We're in awe of it. But it's in a cage. What is it going to be when this creation is set free to soar? And we are set free to soar with it. Who can imagine what is coming down the pike for us? Cranfield, in a a book entitled Reconciliation and Hope, writes this. If the question is asked, what sense can there be in saying that the subhuman creation, for example, the Matterhorn or the planet Venus, suffers frustration by being prevented from properly fulfilling the purpose of his existence? It's like, wait a minute, buddy. You telling me that Venus can't do what it wants to do because of me? You know, that's kind of the question here. He says, is that crazy for us to think that way? He said, the answer must surely be that the whole magnificent theater of the universe, together with all its splendid properties and all the varied chorus of subhuman life created for God's glory, is cheated of its true fulfillment so long as man, the chief actor in the great drama of God's praise, fails to contribute his rational part. That's who you are. Is that glorious? You talk about made in the image of God. So creation is like a violin playing with a piano that's pathetically out of tune. Yeah, it's, it's sounding and you can hear the beautiful notes. But as beautifully as it plays, it's meant to be song is ruined. Its harmonic beauty is fractured. It was made to play with man to the glory of God, but with man who is perfectly tuned to God, now man has corrupted himself and the creation is shackled to futility. But not forever. And that's why he says the creation itself will be set free and it looks with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
So groaning together and travailing together is a vivid expression for the troubled state of nature. Moffat translates the entire creation sighs and throbs with pain as though playing its song with rheumatoid arthritis. You see, creation is pictured in this way as it struggles to bring honor to God. It is with pain until that final day. But it is meaningful pain Verse 22, it has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. These are not death pangs. These are the pangs of childbirth. And coming is the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I close with this. Though the entire creation, as Philippi writes, sets up a grand symphony of size, there's something on the horizon and we can't imagine it. Yet, Paul says, the glory of it far outweighs suffering. You see, if you don't sit and think about the glory of it and the weight of it and the majesty of it and something of the beauty of it and look to it with expectancy and get excited about it, you can't bear up under suffering. You can't even understand suffering. You and I will not refuse sin. We will not put sin to death. We will not walk in greater and greater holiness because we don't have our hearts fixed upon it. Howard Aiken, along with Grace Hopper, invented the first Mark I computer. Okay, 1944, Harvard. It weighed five tons. Okay, it was in a room eight feet high, 55 feet long, 750,000 mechanical parts. You know, just it took it three to five seconds to multiply. All right, that was the first computer. Listen to his quote. In 1947, only six electronic digital computers would be required to satisfy the computing needs of the entire United States. How much are we short-sighted? How much do we have no idea what is hell for us in that day? And does it affect how we live today? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you for the glory of Jesus Christ and the fact that we are joined to him and all that he has is ours. We've earned nothing. We deserve judgment. We deserve to be cast off the property into hell forever, shut out from the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we lost our privilege. We turned our back on you. We should have nothing. And yet by your grace and grace alone, we have everything. For Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus paid for our sin. And Jesus has a right standing before you. And Jesus has earned the new heavens and the new earth for his people. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you. We honor you for what you've accomplished for us. May we all the more, our God, say, Oh, Daddy, and give our lives to the one who is so gracious to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.